We had a lot of questions on the Bhagavad Gita, Swami, and so we have three here today. Uh, the first one is from Prutumesh N. In your fifth lecture on the Gita, you were talking about some people having past life memories. When a human being dies, his or her body and mind are left behind. But how can one remember his or her past lives if he or she has a completely new body and mind? And if Brahman is Nishkriya, what is it that carries those memories? So this is a question from Pratamesh. It's easily answered. Did you note the question? The question is when your person dies, um, so the body and mind, are, they're dead, they're gone. So when we say somebody's reborn, multiple lives, what carries over individuality, memories and things like that? Maybe tendencies or vasanas or impressions. But the answer is in the question itself. Have you noticed? It's only some of you are nodding. <laughs> it's not that the mind dies. The Vedantic idea of the human personality, of our, our personality, is trichotomous. Body, here, the physical body, what you can see and touch, this one. And then what's called the subtle body, sukshma sharira. When you look in, there's nothing mysterious about it. When you look inwards, you see, you feel thoughts, emotions, ideas, memories, desires. A person, a personality. That's the subtle body. In Vedanta, there are, there's a classification. There are 19 parts of the subtle body and so on. That need not concern us now. But the point here is that subtle body does not die when the physical body dies. That's the understanding in Vedanta. In fact, in a general sense, that's the understanding in every religion. The idea of an afterlife is common to every religion. Tell me one religion where it's not, not there. You cannot have a religion without afterlife. So this subtle body, it continues after the death of the physical body. If you ask me what is the proof, I'll ask you what is the proof that it does not continue? Notice, what is death? Clearly death is the death of the physical body. But when you mean a person, a living person, yourself, or the person sitting next to you, what you clearly mean is that body and what's going on in that body, the, the person in that body. Look at the trap we fall into. When the person dies, we say, it's gone. But only the body is dead. How do you know that the person inside, that, that subtle being inside is dead? How do you know? No, really, how do you know? You just see the death of the physical body. No, he's not talking. Obviously not talking. The body is dead. How can the person talk? There are many experiences which show to us that the subtle body and the physical body are not exactly the same. One person told me about, I've heard of this, remaining conscious under anesthesia. General anesthesia, remaining conscious. I met a person actually who has had that experience. And she was saying that in an operation, she was being operated upon, and yet she's completely aware. Um, not a nice thing, <laughs> terrifying thing. But she could not talk, she could not move her hands. Um, medical science has records, but I, the first time I met somebody who has had that experience. <laughs> Which means, when the physical body is immobilized, you can still have a fully functional internal person. And you don't have to go to such rare uh, examples. Just our example of dreaming, where we have a rich internal life, a dream life, without any reference to our physical body. The physical body is asleep on your bed 
and nice, safe and sound. And maybe we are running for your life from uh, a lion on the Serengeti or something. So you're seeing the, uh, the you can see you're seeing the grasslands and the lion chasing you and you're running for your life. Everything is there and yet there is no idea of the, your own physical body which is sleeping on the bed. So you, at least in principle, in our own inner experience, we can experience our own life going on without any reference to this physical body. So anyway, the idea is that the subtle body goes on after death and that goes on to other worlds guided by its own karma, comes back to this world in a, with a new body and a new life. So that subtle body continues with the memories and especially the samskaras, the tendencies. Memories, the yogis say the memories are there, but memories are not easily accessible. Even in this life, memories of ourselves as babies, not accessible to us. Not so easily accessible. So, but tendencies are there. So those continue from life to life and they are carried by the subtle body. As Prathamesh says, Brahman is nishkriya, inactive, inactive in the sense of being the witness consciousness. Just as we saw just now, I am that vast space of, a luminous space of awareness in which all the sensations of this person, uh, it arises and disappears. I am that unchanging awareness. In that awareness, the subtle body and the physical body, they come and go, they manifest, they act. So this is how it happens. The crucial point for Prathamesh to understand is, at death, only the physical body dies. The subtle body, which is Atman plus the mind and other things, that is Atman plus the subtle body, Jivatma, that continues. Atman or Brahman in itself does not come or go anywhere. It just is. And what goes and comes is the subtle body. Physical body moves around here. You're coming from a home to Vedanta society. The subtle body moves with the physical body. And after the physical body is gone, it moves on to other planes of existence. So this is the general idea. The next question. So the, next, the next question is from Pramila C. In the Bhagavad Gita, Krishna says, verse 15-7, the living entities in this conditioned world are my eternal fragmental parts. Due to conditioned life, they are struggling very hard with the six senses which include the mind. It makes sense to know that as a soul, I have an individual existence, and therefore my liberation or removal of ignorance has to be worked out individually. And when the subtle body which covers the soul that I am is done with, then I'll exist as pure light or Brahman. However, according to Advaita, we are all one Brahman, so how is it that this one is covered with millions and zillions of subtle and gross bodies? And how is that removal of ignorance to be worked out separately for each? From whom does the ignorance need to be lifted? From Brahman? But the Brahman is one. Why does each mind-body mechanism have to work separately to remove ignorance from that which is one in us all? Oh, very big question. <laughs> I remember when I was a young monk, I visited uh, one of the um, schools of Tibetan Buddhism. I was wandering in North India, so in a place called Dehradun, um, on the road to, uh, what's the hill station? Masuri. On the road to Masuri, there is a big Tibetan monastery. So I visited that. And I had this question about the relationship between Advaita Vedanta and Tibetan Buddhism. Uh, so the head of that monastery, 
who was the head of a particular sect of Tibetan Buddhists called the Sakyapa. Yes, so I met him. And a long queue of people all taking his blessings. He's, he's like the guru for thousands of people. So I was in the queue as a, as a sort of honored visitor. I told him which lineage I come from, that I'm a Hindu monk and so on. So I have this question. What is the relationship, similarities and dissimilarities between Tibetan Buddhism and Advaita Vedanta? He knew what I was asking. So he was a very gracious and wise man, huge, enormously powerfully built. He was sitting and he looked down at me and he had this huge grin, you know. And he said, big question, no time. So I burst out laughing and I bowed down to him and said, thank you, that's all right, we'll some other time maybe. Um, yes, big question. I'll try to answer in brief. The real, uh, the sting is in the tail, the real question, if you know the Advaita polemics, where is Ajnana or Avidya, ignorance, where is it? Is it in Brahman or is it in us, the Jiva? So that's the last one. But before that, the other, the earlier part of it. Are we one or many? That's what she's asking. Gita seems to say that we are many. The Lord says, these jivas are fractions of my being. So from that, you know, the Vishishta Dvaita philosophy can take up very well. That we are all parts of the Lord. So are we one or many? Obviously as bodies we are many. Just count. Head count. Bodies we are many. As subtle bodies... The thoughts, feelings, ideas, pers persons inside, many or one? Many. He's trying to look at my face, what is the correct answer? <laughs> now just use common sense. Don't you feel that you're different from the person next to you? Of course. Your life story is different, your ideas, thoughts, likes, dislikes, they're all different. So you are different. As bodies, we are different. As the subtle body also, we are different. We are different uh, subtle bodies, different physical bodies, clearly so. But as the Atman, as pure consciousness? Yeah, that's supposed to be the correct answer. That's why you're telling me. That what which we are trying to meditate upon, the vast, limitless sky of consciousness in which all sensations arise and fall. Even the word limitless. If it is limitless, satyam, jnanam, anantam, brahma, pure being, pure awareness, and infinite. If it is infinite, if it is limitless, can there be more than one? You see what I'm asking? If the bodies are different, then there is limit. My body ends here and yours begins there. They say that my freedom ends where uh, my nose ends and your nose begins. So, uh, yes, there's a limit. These bodies are limited in space. I occupy this chair and not that chair. In time. There's a time when I was, this body was born and there's a time when this body will die. We are limited in time. We are limited in space. And we are limited as object. That means each body is different from each other. So limitation is there. As minds also we are limited. Our, my thoughts, your thoughts are different. They, are, they limit each other. This is not that. What do I mean by limit? This is this and not that. So there are two things. So it's limited. But that one consciousness without distinction, without distinction, without limit, if you say infinite, how many infinites and how many limitless things can there be? Only one. Logically speaking. Even if you want to understand it phenomenologically. Phenomenologically means how it feels. 
to you. Clearly, the body feels different. It feels to us right now, our bodies feel different. You can see. Minds also feel different. My mind is, I can't sense your mind, but you can sort of estimate the way we estimate, which, which we infer about other people's minds. And clearly we feel they're different people. So the minds are also different. But now think, if I'm just the witness consciousness without any characteristic, characteristic means distinguishing characteristic in Sanskrit, vishesha. Vishesha means that which distinguishes one from the other. If there are no distinguishing characteristics, how will you say my infinite consciousness is different from your infinite consciousness? There's no my and your there. My and your comes only with the mind. So from the Atman point of view, the infinite consciousness, Atman or Brahman, same thing. It's one. It's one. Then if I am the Atman or Brahman, how, do, how is it many? It's just imagine this. The one sun shining there. Reflected in multiple pots and buckets of water. Dew drops. You will see millions of reflections. And they're all shining like the real sun. So how many suns are there? It's a one real one and many reflected ones. So there's only one real sun. But this consciousness reflected in the mind. Just now when we look at our minds, we feel conscious. We feel aware. That's the reflected consciousness. Chidabhasa. That's not the real Atman. Not, not the real self. That reflected consciousness is as many minds, so many reflected consciousnesses. And so many jivas, individual beings. So at the level of body we are different, at the level of the mind we are different, and the consciousness in the mind, reflected consciousness in the mind, we are different. But that, all that is possible because of one limitless consciousness, which appears in so many forms. You sit surrounded by mirrors in a barber shop. How many of you are there? Thousands, because each mirror reflects the others. So there's endless sequence of your faces there. Only one real face. And many, many, as many mirrors, so many faces. But those are reflections. Really one, apparently many. And those many can be different. Convex mirror, concave mirror, different types of mirror, you'll find funny shapes. But those are only because of the mirror. Your face is not like that. Similarly, we all seem to be different beings. And at that level, we are different beings. At the physical level, we are different beings. But inside, as you go deeper, body, mind, witness consciousness, you come to a oneness. So that's the answer to the first question. The second one is actually much more difficult. Here, I don't know if she has uh, written, uh, her name is Pramila. I don't know if she has uh, written uh, consciously or deliberately, but she has touched upon a very deep point of non-dualistic, what, what is called dialectics. Dialectics means debates with the dualists. So one great question is, where is ignorance or maya? In Sanskrit, ashraya. Where, what is the locus? Where is ignorance? So why should that be a problem? You see, Vedanta says Brahman alone is real. Because of ignorance of our real nature, we seem to be individualized. We seem to be separate. Now, if, this, if ignorance is in us, then how did we come to exist? Because before our individualized existence, ignorance must be there. After ignorance, only we, Brahman appears as individualized jiva. Are you with me? It's a matter of logic. 
So ignorance must logically precede my own existence. Existence as a jiva. But then that means Brahman is in ignorance. Ignorance must be in Brahman. But that sounds very strange. So if you say j ignorance is in jiva, the, there's a fault is mutual dependence. Anyonyasraya. That means the very separate existence of the jiva depends on ignorance and ignorance depends on the, in the jiva, is, is in the jiva. So how can the two, uh, they're mutually dependent, can't work. But if you say ignorance is in Brahman, another problem. How can ignorance be in the absolute reality? It's like saying there's darkness in the sun. There's no darkness in the sun. There's a, darkness is there because the clouds obstruct our vision. So this question is a long and deep and involved question. There are two schools of Vedanta. One school, the one which we follow generally is called the Vivarana school. Coming from one of the disciples of Shankaracharya, Padmapada Acharya. So that school technically its position is that um, ignorance is in Brahman. Is Brahman has ignorance? No, that is not a problem. What is the answer? Because ignorance does not have the same status as Brahman. That means Brahman is existence itself. Ignorance is not a second thing which, which is apart from Brahman. It is basically the power of Brahman. By which Brahman is occluded or hidden and projected as this universe. See, what would be the problem? If ignorance or maya is a second thing and Brahman is another thing, so there will be two. So non-duality is violated then. But here we are saying maya is not a second reality apart from Brahman. It's we can call it the power of Brahman or whatever. That's one school. The other school is Vachaspati Mishra, what is called the Bhamati school. And they say that ignorance is in us, in the, in the Jiva, not in Brahman. How do you know that? Um, who feels ignorant right now? I do not know Brahman. I, the Jiva. So obviously ignorance is in you. Where is the question of ignorance being in Brahman? I do not know my real nature. So ignorance is in me. Then what about, what about the problem of mutual uh, interdependence? So that's like the chicken and egg problem. This is Bijang Kuravat, like the seed and the sprout. Which comes first? So it's not that they are at coterminous and logically contradict each other. But ignorance produces the jiva. But the jiva also perpetuates ignorance. And it's a beginningless series and so that's how very, very he leaves it. The answer is that this, there's no solution to this question. What the sadhus say in the Himalayas is, don't try to prove maya. Don't try to prove. Agyan siddhamat kijiye, agyan ko kaatiye. Don't try to establish ignorance. If you investigate ignorance, you overcome ignorance by knowledge. What happens then when you realize your nature as Brahman, when you are enlightened, this question doesn't exist anymore. As one Swami put it beautifully, on this side of enlightenment, on our side of enlightenment, there is the question, no answer. On their side of enlightenment, there is the answer, but no question. <laughs> All right, last one. And the th third question is from Piet G. He's from the Netherlands. There are two verses where I'm having some difficulty, 7.15 and 7.16. In 7.15, a few categories are mentioned. One of them, the ignorant will not find God. I find this not really fair, as some of these people are not bad people, but they cannot help it that life did not show them the way. 
in 716 a similar verse, but about the good people. Here I got totally confused that a group of people were here mentioned who desired money and material wealth. Why would the desire for money be something good? Please clarify. Okay, I know what you're referring to. Uh, it's in seventh chapter. But the difference between good people and what is called bad means that the, the, the word used is asuri, demonic. The difference is this. Not that someone wants money and somebody is ignorant. The difference is there, the one who has faith in God and the other one who does not. So the, the first verse refers to, it says, Mayaya aparita jnana, asurim bhavam apanna whose knowledge or faith is, they're deluded by maya and full of demonic attributes. What kind of person is that? The kind of person who feels this world alone is real. There's nothing else. Religion, all that is, is just nonsense. Spirituality is nonsense. This physical world is real. It's just matter. Matter, energy, time, space, that's what it is. And nothing, there's nothing more than this here. So a complete reductionist kind of worldview and the material goals in the life are what are worth pursuing and that's it. What about God, heaven, spirituality, enlightenment, Brahman, you know, liberation, whatever? Oh, all that is nonsense. So that's the kind of person he's referring to. So the person completely involved in samsara and there is and sees nothing beyond that, has no faith, let alone knowledge, has no faith even the possibility of something beyond that. Compared to that, the next verse talks about those who have some faith in, in God, in spirituality, just the beginnings, the glimmerings. And says, such people, the good ones, they are the ones, and he gives four categories. That's where the confusion lies. He gives four categories of these good people. What are the four categories? Chaturvida bhajante maam. Four kinds of people have, people have faith in me, faith in me, God. And worship me. What are the four kinds? Artha, Jigyasu, Artharthi, Jnanicha. Artha means those who are in distress. Just because in distress, they are in distress doesn't mean that they are necessarily good people. He says they are good or they have a spiritual possibility because they have faith in God. In distress, they turn to God. They have distress. Illness, some problem, some near and dear person is in trouble or illness or something. And they're helpless and they pray to the Lord. They have deep faith that God exists and if I pray, God will help me. This is what Krishna is pointing out. Sri Krishna is pointing out to Arjuna. They are fortunate. He says, Sukritina, they are fortunate, they have good karma because for some reason, or, there is a reason. The reason is they have got a lot of good karma in the past. For that reason, a faith has developed in them that there is some reality beyond this world. There is some, some faith in God. And there are so many such people. So many such people. Temples and churches and mosques are full of such people. Those who pray to God for help in their misery. There's a second category. Again, good people. And that means those who have faith. What, what's the second category? No distress, no problem as such. But I want something more. Uh, somebody wants wealth. That's what he's referring to. They, the one who wants money is a good person. No, it's not because uh, the person wants money. It's because the person wants something and turns to God in faith for it. That's what Krishna is pointing out. Bhajante maam. Yeah. It turns to God. I, I need this. 
Lord bless me with it. It could be money or success or whatever they want in the world, but they're turning to God for it. And of course, putting forth, forth whatever effort. So there's faith. Now, these two categories are worldly. There's no doubt. As he's saying, that's why he's confused. He's saying there's not particularly good. What's so great about wanting money? True. Nothing particularly great. Whether they want money or they want relief from distress, it is worldly. It's a worldly desire. But to fulfill their worldly desires, they're trying to get hold of God. Higher than this is the third category, who has no problems, no distress, who is not even asking for anything in this world, but has a quest. Jigyasu. Does God exist? Narendranath rushes around and goes to Sri Ramakrishna and says, Have you seen God? Does God exist? Who am I? What is the reality? In a Vedanta, you can approach in both ways. If you are devotional, you are in the God category. And if you are philosophical, of a philosophical bent of mind, the who am I or what am I category. Whatever. Inquiry into the self or inquiry about God. Both are Brahma Jigyasa. So that's Jigyasa. That's the higher category, the spiritual seeker. Most of us here are. Most of us here. We are here because we have a spiritual quest. And the last category, Krishna says, among the good people, Jnanicha, the enlightened, a person who is already enlightened. That person is the true devotee of God. So he says, these four worship me. They have faith in me. The one in distress, the one who wants something, the one who wants to have enlightenment, and the one enlightened one. The enlightened one, he, then the next verse Krishna says, the enlightened one is the dearest to me, for he knows me in truth. Then for, for others, I am an article of faith. And for the earlier category, the so-called demonic category, I'm not even, there's no question of faith also. Now, the question is, it's unfair. It's not unfair, because if you look at the, the Hindu worldview, not just Hindu, Hindu, Buddhist, the Indian worldview, Hindu, Buddhist, Jain, Sikh worldview, there are multiple births, any number of chances. So if a person has no faith in God, this is unfair because the life had not revealed to him. Doesn't matter. Wait, life will reveal. <laughs> Time will come. In this life, next life, it will come. As experience after experience piles on. We are all ancient souls. You just have to look into the eyes of a newborn baby to realize it's a very ancient creature. <laughs> So, um, experience of after experience, it shapes, our, it's, it's like the school of life. And uh, we will come to spiritual life. Everybody will come to spiritual life. That's why Vedanta is not missionary. Vedanta is very, um, very patient, very laid back. Vedanta's approach is take your time. I often say Vedanta is like finishing school for spirituality. Uh, last stop, spirituality. <laughs> yeah, take your time, explore. Swami Vivekananda says, take your time only half seriously because um, it's better not to take your time. If you really ask me, many lives and enormous amounts of suffering, who would want to go through that? If you're sensitive enough, if you're really sensitive, then you realize the nature of this world. Why would you want to repeat it again and again? That first person is demonic because for that person this world is great and this is what, what, what that person wants. So let, let the person go on. Vedanta is um, relaxed enough to wait. Maybe at the end of this life, maybe other lives, the person will come back. 
we go through so many and we have all been like that so there's no need to think that that person is specially unlucky or lost we have all been like that and now we are here and we will go on from the audience here raise your hands so there's a please come you have to come and ask the question here please tell us your name and Please tell us your name and ask the question. Good morning, Swamiji. My name is Fabian Reyes, and I have an ontological question. Um, the concept of Vidya uh, Maya, mm. as put forth by Sri Ramakrishna, um, would it have the explanatory power to um, define or, or, or characterize, say, the different modes of relating to God that the Srimad Bhagavatam uh, expresses, would all those go under the category of Vidya Maya? All right, the question is Vidya Maya. Um, Sri Ramakrishna talks about Maya. What is Maya? We can look at it from the function of um, what it does, basically. Um, in Vedanta, two things. Avarana Vikshepa. Avarana means it hides the reality. Where does it hide the reality? within us and outside us. I am Brahman, but I don't see myself as that. I see myself as body-mind. So, very interestingly, it's not that I do not experience Brahman. We are all exp experiencing within quotes. It cannot be experienced as an object. But we are all experiencing Brahman. You know, you know how? It's like uh, when I say, look at the altar. You say, yes. And I say, look at the wood. This one. You say, yeah, I can see the wood. It's the same thing. Because we know the difference between the wood and the altar. The altar is a name and a form and a particular use. We are put to this wood. Are you with me so far? So it's not that there are two things here. And when we look at the altar, we are looking at both together. I mean, it's the wood with the name and form and function of the altar. Because we know the difference. When you say altar, you mean this shape and this function and this name, altar. And when you say wood, you mean the, the material out of the reality, the material out of which it is made. Now when we say, I am body-mind, it's not that just the enlightened person will say, you are experiencing Brahman right here, with the name and form of body-mind, but you cannot see the difference. Literally you cannot see, you cannot understand, you don't appreciate the difference. Yeah. The Viveka says, because of Maya, the internally, within us, we do not appreciate the difference between, say for example, mind and consciousness. We see thoughts, conscious thoughts, but the, two, the difference is not seen. Just as you understand the difference between altar and wood, the difference between thought and consciousness is not understood. And externally, Brahma Sargayo, the creation, the in-universe, and Brahman as pure being, it appears together to us and we don't see the difference. So the, the difference is obscured by Maya. So that's one function of Maya. Up, it obscures. Avarana. Avarana literally means veiling. And Vikshepa, projection. It projects Brahman as this universe and as uh, this individual being. But that's not all. It's, this is called Avidya Maya. And it is experienced in life as uh, anger and greed and jealousy and all the negativities which tie us down deeper and deeper into samsara. But the divine qualities, self-control, truth, integrity, love, 
and the higher spiritual practices, bhavas, this is what he's referring to. So what are these higher spiritual attitudes? When you regard God as parent, father or mother, Sri Ramakrishna loved God as mother, as Kali, or father. When you love God as friend, like Arjuna loved God as friend, Sakha. When you love God as your own child, Vatsalya Bhava, like the baby Krishna, Gopala, or the baby Rama, Ramlala, like that. Or you love God as um, uh, the, the attitude of the beloved, Madhura Bhava, as the gopis and Krishna. Or the peaceful, the jnanis, the enlightened person, the, the jnanis attitude towards God, Shanta Bhava, the peaceful attitude, something of which we did in the meditation today. That's the peaceful attitude, Shanta Bhava. Now what he's asking is, these are also within Maya, isn't it? We are, we are in the samsara, we are practicing these things. Yes, so Sri Ramakrishna calls all of these as Vidya Maya. You are right, these are modes of relating to God. In Vedanta, in the Bhakti path, in the Bhakti path, we have this principle. Divinize our relationship to human beings and humanize your relationship to God. Very beautiful principle. What are all of them? They are none other than my beloved Krishna in all of these forms. Sab Gopal hai. All are Gopala to me. And what is Gopala to me? What is God? God is my child. Gopala, little baby. God is my mother. Kali. So you have a mother, child. These are human relationships. But you are applying them to God. And one existence, consciousness, bliss in all beings. That's a divine thing. But you are applying it to human beings. This is called Vidya Maya. Vidya, still Maya. It's still within Maya. But it, what the difference? Avidya Maya, the Maya of ignorance, the negativities, they trap us further in samsara. And this Vidya Maya is the one to be cultivated because it helps us to go out of samsara, to be liberated, to be enlightened. So Maya is not bad. Maya gets bad press. What's it called? Bad rep. <laughs> bad press. Uh, Maya does both things. It's a very ancient Sankhyan conception. Prakriti and Purusha. So Prakriti, nature, does two things for Purusha. Purusha is the conscious being. Each of us is Purusha. So Prakriti, material nature, does provides two services to you. One is Bhoga, one is Apavarga. Bhoga means experience. Experience. Often it's translated as enjoyment, but enjoyment is not quite right. Because pleasure and pain are both Bhoga. So material nature provides us that. Why, why would we want... We want pleasure, but why would you want pain? In the nature of experience, to learn in life, all of these are necessary. So these things keep coming. As long as we want samsara, prakriti will, or nature will provide these two for us. Pleasure and pain. Happiness and misery. And this is samsara, it will continue. When we awaken to spiritual life, when we want something more, we become a seeker, then prakriti will provide us a way out. So it's apavarga is a very ancient Indian name for moksha. Moksha means freedom. But apavarga is a name for a very philosophical ancient name. It's used by the Sankhyans. It's used by the Nayaikas. It's a very old name, out of fashion nowadays. So that same prakriti which provides bhoga and apavarga, experience and freedom. In Vedanta that prakriti becomes maya. So Maya provides us with samsara and liberation, moksha. 
For samsara, maya becomes avidya maya. For liberation, maya becomes vidya maya. Very good. Thank you. Can I just ask a related yes. question? Yes. Very quick. Um, so, in terms of liberation, if you're relating with God in such deep levels, is are you a liberated soul or are you going to have to come back to finish and go past even that? If you're li uh, relating it, to it, God with these... In, in a very, yes, in very personal, deep ways. Are in you these ways. A liberated, as, liberated soul? as a child or as a, a friend or lover, whatever. Uh, it depends on whether it's a practice or it's a fact. By this practice, one reaches, this is a sadhana, spiritual practice. Right. And there's a fulfillment of that sadhana when it becomes a living fact. The monk who came to Sri Ramakrishna in Dakshineshwar, he worshipped the child Rama in a little image of Ramlala. But the monk could see the child Rama. He would walk around, climb on his shoulders, nobody else saw anything else. But he would climb on his shoulders and he would play with that monk. And then when he came to Dakshineshwar, the child Rama... So that, that was the fulfillment of his lifelong worship of, of that little image. Because now that person, he sees God in that form. It's the same Satchidananda. It's a beautiful spiritual technology, if I may, may say so. The same Satchidananda, the impersonal existence consciousness, please, which we are talking about. We are, we are singing there, Satyam Jnanam Anantam Brahma, infinite being consciousness. But that infinite being consciousness in a name and form. That name and form, you might say, is cultural, because he's a Hindu, because he is a worshipper of Rama, Ramayat Sadhu. So he sees that true. No problem there. It's a lens through which he sees. You need a name and form to see it. So that name and form is the name and form of the baby Rama. And so now, is that person, is, a, is that person realized or will he have to come back? No, he's realized. Yeah. A strict non-dualist might insist, no, 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 one more step. Aham Brahmasmi, I am that baby, that Ram Lala, I and that are one and the same. Sri Ramakrishna is much more <laughs> liberal. If you, he says, if you have touched the reality in some way or the other, you are liberated. If you have touched it in devotion, you are liberated. You, you know the reality. You know the reality, then any non-dualist who has memorized dozens of texts and argued and debated with many people, but has not actually experienced Aham Brahmasmi, as Vivekananda said, uh, an ounce of practice is worth 20 ton tons of tall talk. <laughs> uh, so, yes. If that's a vibrant living reality, it's... And once one is well along the path, one need not worry about liberation, moksha, jivan mukti, yeah, liberated while living, videha mukti, liberated after death. Don't worry. You're already on the path. There is no backing out for you. It will come in its own time. That's secondary. Enjoy the journey. One beautiful thing I learned from Swami Smarananandaji, who is our president, president of our order in India. He said many years ago, he said, not only the end is bliss, but the means must be bliss too. When you're doing sadhana, talking about God, reading about God, uh, whether it's in a philosophical non-dualistic way or in a devotional dualistic way, it should be full of joy. Be very happy because you are blessed. Thank you for the question. Thank you very much. Yes. So these are several questions on a category we're calling practical Vedanta. So the first question is from Pratik D. 
I internalize the problems of my family members, feel responsible for their happiness, and become depressed. How can I apply Vedanta philosophy to be happy in family life? First of all, one's own problems. You're now appropriating other people's problems and becoming depressed. No, that's good, because a sensitive person is, is bound to be like that. If one is not feeling the problems of others, one is a brute. But one must be both practical and sensitive. Practical and sensitive. A pastor in a church said to me that in every church, in a community, we have people who are so heavenly that they are no practical good. <laughs> the minds are always, always heavenly, no, no, no practical good. And one monk said to me, you know what is practical Vedanta? I said, what? If you ask a monk to do something practical, he'll give you a talk on Vedanta. That's practical Vedanta. <laughs> <laughs> so, no, one must not be like that. Not all theory and no, no practice. But the opposite, Vivekananda says, too much practicality makes brutes of us. So if you are sensitive to the sufferings of others, very good. Very good. Now, one must also be centered in one's spiritual nature. How do you overcome your own personal suffering? A spiritual attitude is necessary. A karma yogi. I, my life is service. I love to be of use to others. Can I remove the sufferings of others? So when my own sufferings come, physical problem, uh, uh, somebody behaved badly with me, I have got financial problem, whatever, these are very minor to me because I'm so engaged in trying to help other people. I see the suffering, I identify with, with others. Don't you see, when you have a lot of responsibility and a lot of people are depending upon you, in that case, your own sufferings become secondary. When you're all alone, I've seen sometimes monks in, in the caves, how narrow and selfish they become. Because there's nothing else to do. So the whole mind comes upon this body. My little problem. That becomes the whole world to them. So, it's, the karma yogi's attitude is, I, I am here to help, what can I do for you? And that becomes paramount. One Swami, uh, I really like this, I never met him, I heard it from another senior Swami. In our hospital in Banaras, this Swami, many decades ago, he said to the younger monks, I don't know, what is this, these problems you are bringing to me? Anger and lust and greed and struggles in monastic life. I don't know, when I became a monk, when I was your age and joined the order in this hospital, from morning till night, they were patients, they were in pain, they were suffering, and I have to go and help them. So I, we would rush to, I and my brothers, we would, young, young novices, we would rush to the hospital and work throughout, tirelessly throughout the day. And in the evening come, in the afternoon we would come for food, sometimes we would miss food and the, we would be late and just our a plate of cold food would be left and everybody's eaten and gone. We would just finish, gulp it down, rush back to the hospital. And then in the evening, we would probably miss evening prayers. But it would come late in the night. And if any food is left, I'd take that. And moment I hit the bed, I'm out like a light. So exhausted from the day. And the next day, and the next day, and such in this way, 40 years of my life went by. I never felt what you're talking about. Anger and lust and greed. You see what a blessed life that is. To be free of one's little petty problems. Let it go. 
If you are a bhakta, this is a karma yogi, as a bhakta, my love of God is all-consuming, not my little problems. God is not there for, for me to trot out my Christmas list of wishing, you know, wishes. Uh, give me this, give me that, give me that. No. Doesn't matter. For a bhakta, the only problem is if I forget God. And the only achievement is if I can remember and stay with God. Kunti prayers at the end of the great war of Mahabharata. Kunti prays to Sri Krishna. That all I want is life after life. If I have to be born again, life after life. Give me sorrows, my Lord, so that I may never forget you. What a serious prayer that is. Who prays for sorrow, especially who prays to, for sorrow to God? Who can grant it? <laughs> but I remember thee. And for the jnani, I am Satchidananda. I am that infinite sky of consciousness in which these things, good things and bad things, so-called troubles and so-called pleasures, they arise, shine and disappear like clouds floating past in the vast blue sky. The sky is unconcerned and unaffected. Neither too excited by the nice things which happen, nor too disturbed by the little problems which come and go. Because they will go. Anything that comes and goes has no relation to the eternal. You are the eternal. Therefore, anything in the world has no relation to you. This body has no relation to you. Not only are you not the body, you are, this body is also not yours. I mean it. I am not the body, but this body is mine, is something most of us can come to. But the body is not even mine. How is this body yours? Who gave it to me? Show me the papers. If a cop pulls you up and says, show me the papers to the body. No, I don't have any papers. Who gave it to you? Did you make it? No. Even our parents didn't make it. Nature makes it, Prakriti. Do you own the materials, the sky and the fire and the earth and the water and the air out of which the body is made or the 150, 70, 80 odd elements in the periodic table? Do you own them? No. If you own the materials, you can say this is made of the materials I provided. No. You don't own the materials. Do you control it? Does it obey you? Not at all. Most of the processes in the body we have absolutely no idea. And the few things which we have an idea of, which we think we have involuntary control, we have absolutely no idea how we are in voluntary control of that. Digestion, the uh, hormonal secretions, the neuronal activity in the brains, the kidneys, the liver, is a miracle how they are working. The heart pumping away throughout our living as life uh, goes on. Lungs, we don't have the slightest bit of control over them. They don't obey us at all. And thank God, if suddenly nature handed over, oh, okay, I, you are it. <laughs> 911, immediately. What happened? He tried to run his own body. <laughs> it collapsed in two minutes. The body does not obey us. Not at all. And one day it will go. Even the, the things which we say consciously we are doing, breathing in, yeah, we, didn't you give us a breathing exercise? Breathing in. Yes, but how did I do it? I have no idea. A thought came in my mind, I'm going to breathe in, and miraculously it happened. Think about it. It happened miraculously. So, no, I did it. No, you didn't. Notice. A little stroke, a little paralysis this way, and it shows to us, we have really no idea how I was lifting this hand. Now I can't. 
So none of this, let alone involuntary functions, voluntary functions of this body also. Mind, endless random flow of thoughts and ideas and feelings, where they are coming up from, these drives and desires, where they are bubbling up from and taking charge of my life. Depressive thoughts, making me thoroughly miserable. I read an article, Memoirs of Madness. I forget the name, very well-known writer. Oh, he wrote the book Sophie's Choice. William Turner or something? What's his name? Stark. Styron. William Styron. Styron. William Styron. If you read the Memoirs of Madness, you can understand why he wrote a book like Sophie's Choice. The depth of darkness within him. And so he writes once that I went to commit suicide, but I was luckily saved. And later on, they put me on some psychiatric medication. After that, I felt, why did I try to kill myself? There's nothing wrong at all. So where did those depressive thoughts come up, hijack my whole thinking process and drive me towards death? No control there either. It has nothing to do with you. It's a projection of, call it Maya, God, whatever. This drama of life is being played on the stage of consciousness which you are. From that point of view, if you take that point of view, where are the problems of the world? Let them come and go, they're nothing to you. One thing, I'll tell you one thing. Nothing can kill you. From now on, check. Year after year, decade after decade, lifetime after lifetime, check. The Swami was right, I'm still there. I'm old and sick, but I'm still there. I'm dead, but I'm still there. (laughs) Here I am, a new baby, I'm still there. The Swami was right. Nothing can kill me. Nothing can kill us. Nothing can touch our essential nature. Bodies can be damaged. Minds can be made unhappy. So, our personal problems do not touch us that way. Stay in that nature, you will see the problems of others also will not make you depressed. Rather, you will be able to help. You don't have to be depressed. You should not be depressed in order to help others. If a doctor gets overwhelmed by the pain of the patients, how can the doctor help others? You can help others when you know the truth that There is something within us which is untouched by suffering. Identify with that, stay there. From there, that position, you can help. Who are the ones who can most help humanity? It is the spiritually enlightened. When the Buddha set out to find uh, solutions to sufferings, the solution he found, he found a solution. But was that solution, what was that solution? What is a new kind of medicine? No. Was it a new TV show? Entertainment? No. Was it a new political system? No. It was a spiritual solution. Because at root, our sufferings are spiritual suffering, nothing else. Yeah. Next question. The next one is from Sharat K. How can one be consciously aware of desires being formed in the mind and prevent new desires, either consciously or subconsciously, from being formed? And can desires be destroyed in their seed state? Yes, this is a very yogic question. Um, it can be done, but let me, before I go into that, let me just um, say that 
to notice the formation of desires, the arising of desires and the subsiding of desires and the transformation of desires from negative to positive in the mind through meditation requires skill. Deep meditation, not easily available. Preliminary to that, and an easier way of that, but not as glamorous as sitting quietly and I'm meditating and transforming myself, but, um, but more powerful is the path of karma yoga. When actually with this body, with this speech, I'm interacting with this world and other people. Instead of trying primarily to fulfill my desires. What are my desires? I want to bring all the wealth and happiness and pleasures of the world for this one body-mind. That is selfishness. And even if I do, I'll never be happy. That is selfishness. Rather, let me try to fulfill the needs of others. Let me try to assuage their, their grief. Um, the golden rule which is there in every religion, that you treat others as you would have them treat you. That others suffer the way I suffer, others also suffer. The way I am pleased by nice things, others are also pleased. So let me try to remove their sufferings and let me, let me try to give them happiness. That is actually a much more powerful way of controlling one's desires and transforming them. And an easier way. A monk told me, a senior monk once told me when I was a novice, He said, we are ordinary people. There are great spiritual uh, yogis, there are yogis, masters of meditation, who can actually make the transformation at the level of the mind in deep meditation. But that's not so easy for us. For most of us, he said, for most of us, we require external struggle. We need to do something in the world to change ourselves. That's why work is there. That's why, in fact, samsara is there. All the desires which drive us uh, to have uh, to um, get money and success and uh, and compete in the world and get relationships and children and all of that samsara, the whole thing, that's also spiritual because it slowly leads to transformation. If you do it consciously, it is called karma yoga. So we need, that monk told me, we need, most of us, we are ordinary people, we need external struggle. We need to wrestle with the world. If you do it unselfishly as service, the transformation of desires is much faster, it's good. Now, but the question was about meditation. Yes, it can be done. It works in this way. In the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali, which is perhaps one of the, old, the oldest manual of meditation that we find, in a commentary written on the Yoga Sutras by Vyasa, there is a very beautiful, uh, he quotes a, a much more ancient text, Vyasa quotes. What he says is this, evam vritti samskara chakram ahar nisham avartamanam. The cycle of vrittis and samskaras rotates, the wheel of rittis and samskaras rotates day and night. What does it mean? Notice our thoughts. If you notice carefully, if you introspect, you will see we are not really thinking them. They bubble up from inside somewhere. And then we put them into action. Are you with me? You see, if you notice carefully, simple thing like I will raise my hand. So I raise my hand. So did you not think it? Did you not do it? No. Before I did it, I thought it. But before I thought it, if I look carefully, 
the decision I will raise or not raise, somehow it is a subtle impulse coming up from unknown depths, like a little bubble coming up from deep inside a lake. When it comes to the surface, it becomes noticeable, it becomes an impulse, raise your hand. But it, I did not actually think it. It came and it sort of took position. You will see that's how it's functioning. It is bubbling up from inside and then it takes possession of us. Then you make it a conscious thought. Then you say something and do something. Mind, speech, action. Kaya mana vakya. Kaya means body. Mana means mind. Vakya means speech. So before um, anything, the thought bubbles up. Becomes a conscious thought. Transformed into speech. I say something. I do something. Now, here is the thing. So what, does, what can meditation do? These thoughts which are bubbling up from inside, they are from our tendencies. Where are they? Why, why do particular thoughts come up? Particular desires or particular patterns of thinking? Maybe some people say, I, I get very depressed. So patterns of thinking, why? The reason is, that we have samskaras, tendencies inherited from our past years and past lives. The conditioning is there. And that comes up. That's what bubbles up. And often it is called forth by external circumstances. Now, as it bubbles up, there is a window of opportunity. Where the tendency as it comes to the surface, and before it becomes an expressed thought at the surface of the mind, before that, there is a point where you can assent to it, you can say yes, or you can say no. That window is very, very small and we miss it all the time. We, are, we mostly function on default. Whatever is bubbling up from inside, that takes control. Some of us, we try to exercise willpower, but willpower doesn't usually work. Why? You may control it once, next time it's more powerful. Control it once and fail twice. That's mostly <laughs> the case of willpower with most people. Why, are you, why does it fail? It fails because already it has become an expressed thought at the level of the mind. Then, then there's a lot of psychic energy in it. So if you try to stop it and, and push it back down, it takes a lot of psychic energy, a lot of willpower to do that. And no wonder that we sometimes succeed, sometimes fail. What meditation does is, it makes you aware that before it has become expressed, at the surface of the mind, when it bubbles up from the seed from, from, from unknown depths, you have a moment, a tiny window of conscious choice. Do I allow this? Is it, is, is, it, is it positive? Is it according to my goals in life? Is it helpful to me? Or is it negative? It's going to take me in the wrong direction. <laughs> so at that moment, you have a choice. It comes from what is called samskara, inherent tendencies. And when it comes to the surface of the mind, it becomes what is called vritti. Vritti means thought. From samskara to vritti. And then action. I say something, do something. And if you entertain the vritti in the mind, that vritti then subsides, but it doesn't disappear. It goes back and strengthens that samskara. So there is a cycle. Samskara, vritti, chakra, avartamanam, rotating. When? Day and night, throughout conscious life. Even in dream, it rotates. Now, what the meditator does, the Raja Yogi, is as in that conscious, that, that instant, the window of opportunity, as the vritti is forming, 
before it is powerful, before you have invested psychic energy in it, the yogi can actually see this and substitute, instead of giving the default version, substitute. Angry reaction, say an insulting word. No, calm, let it go. Now when it forms, the mind will be, it will be a peaceful thought. Let it go. So he has done that at the seed state. Now another thing happens. The same psychology works. That let it go peaceful reaction to an irritating circumstance comes and makes it a vritti and holds on to that vritti, transforms that into action. That vritti will go down back into the subconscious. And that will become a samskara over time. And that thing rotates. As that rotates, our samskaras also change. What he calls transformation? Our desires, we'll find after some time the yogi notices the vrittis which are forming, the samskaras which are bubbling up, they're all positive. They're all nice. They're all helpful. They're spiritual. What you think you should do, now you want to do that. The conflict is, I have decided I want to be a yogi and so I have got certain things I want to do. Uh, that These are things which I should do. But the, the, the things bubbling up from inside me are contrary. I want to do that, I should do this immediately. This is conflict. That's at the beginning. The yogi transforms this. So that what I want, what I should do is also what I want to do. Then the thing becomes easy. Sri Ramakrishna put it in his very simple way. He used to live on the side of the river. So he would see the fishermen or the boatmen would mightily use long oars to push their little boats out to the midstream. When the boat is in the midstream of the river Ganga, in the current, it just flows with the current and the sail is up. The wind is pushing it along, the current is pulling it along. And the same boatman who was sweating and working so hard now sits at the helm, holds the rudder and he says he has a, enjoys a smoke. <laughs> he puffs away and holds the rudder of the boat and the boat just merrily sails along. He says, in spiritual life too, there's a time when you must struggle, push hard, push back until the inner conditioning changes. To some extent, it becomes helpful. Some have done it, lucky ones, in their past lives. You're lucky to be born with spiritual samskaras. I see this all the time, especially in a specialized community like the monks. The young novices I've seen in the monastery, all have come to be monks. All have come to be trained in spiritual life. So all have good intentions. And yet some struggle and some sail along merrily. Why? All want it. I mean, want it at least they have decided, this is going to be my life. This is how I should be. But why the struggle then? Because internally, deep inside conditioning is what pulls some people back. And some other people, they just sail along merrily. They get up, even before the rising bell in the monastery sounds at 3.40 a.m. Even before that, they are up. It can be very irritating if your roommate is one of them. <laughs> when you're trying to grab some sleep in the hot, muggy atmosphere, here is this one who's already taken his bath and chan chanting Sanskrit verses and getting ready happily for uh, two hours of meditation. So, how is that person doing it? Some do it by strain, straining. That's not a good idea. Skill is better. I know one of our brothers, one of the young monks, who was who tried so hard. You wouldn't believe it. 
he would go, and, and you can imagine it's 110 degrees in the shade and 100% humidity, literally drenched in sweat. And then you have to do hard work like uh, serving 20 people on this side and 20 people on that side in, 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 the, in the dining hall. And you have buckets and buckets of rice and curry and stuff like that. And you have to go and serve them. It's really hard work. He does it for one batch of monks. After that is done, the second batch he serves. Third batch where the people who are serving, they're supposed to eat themselves. He serves the third batch too, does not eat himself. Then he comes back to the place he's staying. You will not, this is an extreme case and please, nobody should try it. You know what he does? He plucks leaves and grass and boils, cleans it, boils it and eats that. To prevent himself from sleeping too much at night, he had elevated his bed with bricks on one side, so it will be like an incline, so he can't sleep comfortably. One day he slipped up with an almighty thud, you know, crash, <laughs> which reverberated throughout the building. So anyway, that is training, that is training. Luckily, the blessings of God were on him, and he slowly moderated himself, and he's a very good monk now. Um, that's training. The opposite is laziness. This is the backsliding, the slacking. So transformation happens this way. This question is from Suvik C. From childhood, we are taught to relate to our ego, my things, my house, etc. My question is, as a young father, is there a way I can make my children understand this real concept of the Vedantic I and yet not alienate them so much from their peer group that they are thought of as weird? Right. <laughs> yeah. There's the first, one of the first signs of becoming spiritual is you want your children to be spiritual. Long before you become spiritual yourself. <laughs> I remember a school where we were young monks and there were little kids in that school and we used to have meditation sessions for the kids. And one of the kids grumbled after, after the meditation session. He said, Swami, I think I'm going to become enlightened before you. <laughs> uh, so, yes. So young father, mother, the first thing they want is, my children should be uh, uh, spiritual. It's natural, you love your children and you found something which is really good and you know that it will be really good for them. But the easiest way is to be spiritual yourself. Now one more thing, remember, this transcending the ego or some people say crushing the ego, uh, going beyond the ego, this talks about the mature ego. So a child first needs to develop an individuated and mature ego. You see the, the rebelliousness of a teenager. That's a nat natural way when a teenager is beginning to develop his or her own personality apart from parents. Now that's expressed in all sorts of nasty ways which gives a shock to parents and other people but it's a, na it's a good process. Before that one should not apply these Vedantic ideas of transcending the ego and all of that. First, the child must have what is called uh, a confident, independent personality. Maturity, some kind of maturity. Internal maturity. It's not physical maturity. Sometimes children are much more mature than their parents. <laughs> Internally, wiser. So that, that, so a psychologically independent, mature ego is first necessary. And then only you can think of transcending it with Vedanta. The ways are two. One is, expand yourself so that you encompass others. I refers not only to this little body and mind, but to all. 
family, community, school, so more and more. Children are generally loving. So if you encourage them to expand by sharing, by caring for others, they, but first they must have confidence in themselves. And for there, the parents have a big role to play. Unconditional love, structure, all of these things are necessary. Um, after that only transcendence. So this is one way, expansion. The other way is um, the devotee's way of making oneself smaller. So I give importance to the thou, not to me. So one is exemplified by um, Swami Vivekananda, who made himself so great. Girish Ghosh said, Swami Vivekananda made himself so great that Maya's net, he grew out of it. So Maya's net couldn't, Maya couldn't catch him in her net. And Nag Mahasaya, the devotee of Sri Ramakrishna, he made himself so small that he easily slipped through the net of Maya. Somebody asked Nag Mahasaya, you keep saying that I am nothing, I am miserable, I am a, a sinner. Didn't Swami Vivekananda say that you should not, you know, sell yourself short. You should not say that you are a bad person. You should not say that I am a mean person. It's very bad for your spiritual growth. But Nag Mahasaya is simple. He thought about it and he said, you are right. That's what Swami Vivekananda said. But what can I say? I just look at myself. I'm telling you the truth. I see what, what I see about myself. So he made himself so small that... Um, the ego disappeared. Swami Vivekananda made himself so big that the ego became one with the universal eye. All right. And from Aaron S., how should one determine one's goals in life? I am struggling with this. Please guide. There's a whole, uh, you're going to Barnes and Noble, you'll go goal setting, <laughs> the, the books and books and books. Uh, no, but it's good. One should have a goal in life. Swami Vivekananda said, have your own highest goal. What should, be the, what should be the goal in life? First of all, it should be your own goal. Own goal means read about it, listen to people, but then what appeals to the heart? There was a lot of things appeal to the heart. Yeah. I want to do good to people. I want to have that cookie. I want to have, I'd rather have the parking spot and not give it to you. All of these things appeal to the heart. So Vivekananda says the noblest of all of them. In all the things that appeal to you, what is the highest and noblest, what you feel is high and noble. You'll often see these things involve other people also. Generally, it's not limited to an individual, generally. But a high and noble goal need not always be like social service. It can also be something like um, art or science. or uh, So high and noble goal. Have a goal. You see, if you get into a cab there and the guy asks, where to? Say, just drive. <laughs> no. <laughs> you don't do that. And yet in our lives we do that, you know. Where are you going? If you ask, What's the goal? Especially students I've seen in India, they're so, um, what's, what's your goal in life? They'll give you a lecture on what should be the goal in life. But what is their goal in life? Apart from what they've been programmed by the parents, you have to be a doctor or engineer or something like that. Apart from that, what's your, what do you want in life? They look at you blankly. They've never been asked to think for themselves and see what is the dream in life, personal goal in life. It's like getting into a cab and just drive. That man, you know the story of the man who was galloping through the village in, on a horse, horseback. 
And somebody asked, Sir, where are you going in such a hurry? And he said, I don't know, ask the horse. <laughs> That's our life. Ask the horse. It's if you don't know where you are going, you won't like where you get to. Because you, <laughs> you never wanted to go there. So, always, definitely. And because it's a Vedanta society, it's not a group of young people. For that, I recommend Tony Robbins and things like that. But because it's a Vedanta society, the goal in life should be enlightenment. God realization. In whatever way you understand it. My own real nature. It always seemed to me, if this is true, what the religions of the world say, what Vedanta says, if it is true, then what else is worth having in life? This is worth having in life. If this is not true, what else is worth having in life? Nothing is worthwhile. So this should be the goal in life. Right now you might say, I need to get an education, I need to put my financial affairs in um, order, I need to, um, my job, all these are pulling the demands on me. Yes, dharma, artha, kama, they have the pull on you. But overall goal, final goal in life, always should be enlightenment. Keep it. It's a great blessing even to formally acknowledge to yourself what the Buddha wanted, what Vivekananda wanted. I also want that. It's open to me. It's open to everybody. They want it and they said it's open to everybody. That's the goal of humanity. So Vivekananda said, the goal of life is to manifest the divinity already present within us. It's not just the goal of religion. Religion is the way to do it. Spirituality is the way to do it. But our goal is that. Simple and direct. And truly speaking, truly speaking, whether we know it or not, that is our goal. When we say, I want to be happy. I want to be fulfilled. I want to be successful. What are you really asking for? You're asking for enlightenment. You may not see the link. If you see the link, you are a spiritual seeker. Don't see the link, you're just living, you say, I'm just living my life. That's why Aurobindo said, life itself is yoga. Life itself is yoga. If you understand life deeply, what is happening, personal life and the way civilization is going, it is yoga. It's a kind of vast cosmic yoga. After some time we awaken to this process and then we do it consciously. We start reading books, attending lectures, starting to meditate, pray, philosophy, spiritual practices... We become conscious, we start doing it consciously. Then you call yourself a spiritual seeker. Just avidya maya to vidya maya. From bhoga to apavarga. Remember those ancient terms? Bhoga is experiencing life. Apavarga is a conscious decision to reach enlightenment. Yes. And we have one last rather heavy question right. from Shudhir K. How do we contemplate on death? How should we approach it? Uh-oh. <laughs> contemplate on death somebody asks if you contemplate death somebody asks Vivekananda won't you become depressed Swamiji thought for a moment and said initially you might but afterwards you will get a tremendous sense of freedom so contemplate on death first the inevitability of death Everybody, the people we knew, grandparents, parents, they have gone or are on the way of going out. As we grow, very soon we realize we're already past the prime. Whatever nice had to happen, more or less has happened. <laughs> Nothing very fantastic is going to happen now. It's going to be like this. <laughs> yeah. You say, how depressing. No, it's depressing only if I'm foolish. 
I was looking for something in this life to happen which would make me absolutely fulfilled. This life cannot fulfill me in that way. You are asking it to do something it cannot do. Life is for experience. Bhoga and Apavarga. That Prakriti says, Bhoga and Apavarga. For experience, for gaining knowledge and finally gaining illumination. Life itself cannot provide you with happiness and fulfillment. What can provide you with happiness and fulfillment? What you really want is this God-realization or enlightenment. Proof. Look at the saints of different civilizations, religions, throughout the ages. One thing common to them, they were happy. Not happy in a cartoon way with a smiley face. Profoundly, spiritually satisfied internally. No matter what the struggles of their day-to-day life. They did not complain. You have never heard of a saint who, who, is, who is to grumble. No. Saint means a really enlightened person. Never. That's why I say enlightenment, don't be in a hurry. You lose the right to grumble. You re- lose the right to complain. Aren't you set, supposed to be completely fulfilled? So spirituality is that which, which will um, fulfill us. So death is inevitable. Uh, we must contemplate the fact that physical death is going to come to all of us. Vivekananda put it in his powerful way. Saints die and sinners die. Emperors die and paupers die. The learned die and the ignorant die. Everybody dies. We find that we are all going towards that. There is absolutely no need to be unhappy about it. Because as I said earlier, check with this. The true you, the real you, you cannot die. It's only the body which will die. If we hold on to the body as I, me, mine, then shocks will come. Because it will deteriorate, it will age, it will fall apart and it will die in our experience itself. We will directly experience all this. Don't hold, psychologically, don't hold on to it so tightly. There's an old Vedantic story of three friends who are going to this party. It's like a, it's called a festival, Mela in Hindi, the next village. And they're all dressed up in their finery. Now, as they went along, they were caught by decoits, by, by robbers, who said, who saw their fine silk clothes and said, give them to me. Now, one of them was really well-built, uh, you know, large and um, with the, uh, and also loved his new clothes. The second one was large, physically well-built, but he was not particularly attached to the clothes. And the third one was skinny, and also not, not particularly enamored of the new clothes. Now, who will have the greatest pain in taking off and giving away the new shirt? The first one, who is difficult to take off, because he's so snug, tight fit, and also attached to it. This is the worldly person who thinks, I am the body. Fully one with one's own skin. I am the body. And has not practiced spiritual disciplines. So giving up is, is really difficult. But in time of death, when the Lord of death, Yamaraja, comes to snatch away the <laughs> fine cloth of the body, very difficult. The second one is a person who has that, that Vedantic insight, the, the, the spiritual insight. I am a spirit. I am not a body. I am consciousness. I am the witness in which the body is experienced. But has not done sufficient spiritual practice. So it's not an instinctive thing. Understands, but there's a struggle to take off the cloth. 
He's not attached to it, but still snug fit. So, third one is the one who has got the spiritual discernment and also the lifelong spiritual practice who easily takes it off and casts it away. I've seen myself and we have read about so many enlightened people, so many spiritual seekers, don't even say enlightened people, who have done spiritual practice throughout their life, who see themselves as spiritual seekers, at the point of death, in full awareness, in complete consciousness of God, joyfully, quietly pass away. I know some of them, I have seen, both monks and householders. This is not just at the point of death they were spiritual. They had this clear, uh, this clarity even before that. And so they were, they were able to deploy these spiritual resources at that spiritual crisis, at the point of physical death. So just contemplate like this. I am the witness of the body and mind. I am not this body, nor even this mind. I have had so many bodies in the past which I do not remember. Losing this body, death is like turning over a page in a book. I've read it and the next page begins. There's a song which monks sing in the main monastery in, in uh, India, in Belurmat, when a monk is cremated. Usually members of the public are not allowed, allowed there. It's a Bengali song. Shishu chilam juba hoechi. I was a child, now I'm, I'm a uh, youth. And I will be old in some days hence. And at death, Dehantare. I will get another body and I'll be reborn as a child again. O death, what fear dost thou have for me? Uh, uh, what fear dost thou hold for me? I have no fear of death. It's just changing one body for the other. And then he goes on. But what need do I have of newer and newer bodies and experiences? In Bengali, Gan Rupi Shib, Ache Namai Kolekori. That means Shiva. But who is Shiva? Not the, the how we imagine in iconography, the blue god sitting on the white Himalayas, meditating with the serpent and the crescent moon, the, the archetype of the yogi. Gyan Rupi Shib. No, Shiva who is consciousness. I sit in the lap of Shiva who is eternal consciousness. Basically, I am a child of consciousness. Why do I need new bodies? Why should I go through deaths, births and deaths again? So in this, this time, let it be for the last time. When this body goes and burns on the pyre, a funeral pyre, I am free forever. To that song monks sing. Moron ki bhai dakhao mori. Death, what fear dost thou show me? Om Shanti 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 Hari Om Tat Sat Shri Ram Krishna Rupanamastu